Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome everyone to the Oddcast featuring me, the Odd Man Out. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. Now, if you haven't listened to those we don't speak of, one through four, well, you don't have to listen to those first, but I do suggest that you do. And it'll give you a little bit more of kind of a, a foundation of what we're going to be talking about. But none of it's in a chronological order, so it's cool if you don't. Now, you may wonder if you didn't listen to the others, why would you do a career killer of a subject like those we don't speak of. Well, it's simple, okay? A few years ago, my grandmother passed away. Now, one of my grandmothers. I wasn't close to her, and I didn't know the family very well. Well, my brother and I, we saw in the obituary that her maiden name was Jewish. So we got to looking into it, and that got us interested. And it's pretty much the reason I started looking into this whole subject. And I wanted to find out more and more And it's one of those subjects that's endless because you just keep finding out more and more information. We know nothing about modern Israel or how it was founded or Zionism. We know nothing about current events in Israel and who runs the government and who are the cronies in Israel, cronies to the government, that is. And I just found it all very, very interesting. And, you know, basically the only thing that I knew about Israel was what I'd learned in school and a little bit from going to church. So I find it very, very intriguing. And that's why I started doing these shows. And so I hope that you find it as intriguing as I. Now, this time around, we're going to be looking into revisionist Zionism. And you have to understand that when the Brits took over Palestine from the Ottoman Turks, they were still controlling it. They were still the government there, right? And they were overseeing Jewish immigration into Palestine. Well, even though, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm no fan of the British government. I know they are the dirtiest players in the game up until this point. But let me say that it seems pretty shady what happened. Maybe there's not honor among thieves, but the Zionists wanted to control all of Palestine, and they resented Britain for not just letting every Jew that wanted to come there. So they began to act out. Now, you had two factions of Zionism. First, you just had the regular political Zionism that we've talked about, which tried to get things in a basically a political way and using leverage here and there and cronyism, organization, money. But then another kind of Zionism sprang up revisionist Zionism. And what that was, 
was a call to take Palestine by force. And so you had this man who became the leader of revisionist Zionism called Vladimir Jabotinsky. You may have heard of him. I have read that there's over 50 roads in Israel named after him. Now, I'm not sure if that's correct or not because it's a fairly small place and that would be a lot of roads named after one guy, but, you know, maybe it is true. I thought that we would look into Vladimir Jabotinsky in something kind of the cookie-cutter version first, and that is from the Encyclopedia Britannica website. It lists him as being born in Odessa, Ukraine, in 1880. Ukraine is very important to the Jews, by the way, and I think we figured that out. But it says he was a Zionist leader, and he was the founder of the Haganah. Now, born in 1880 in Odessa in the Russian Empire, now in Ukraine, he died on August 3, 1940, near Hunter, New York, in the United States. Zionist leader, journalist, orator, and man of letters who founded the militant Zionist revisionist movement that played an important role in the establishment of the state of Israel. Isn't it interesting that Theodor Herzl, who's known as the father of Zionism, was also a writer, a playwright, and a journalist. Jabotinsky began his career in 1898, as a foreign correspondent, but his popularity as a journalist led to his recall to Odessa in 1901 as an editorial writer. By 1903, Jabotinsky began to expound Zionist views for the restoration and creation of a Zionist Jewish national state in Palestine, both in his writings and in his oratory, of which he was a master. During the next decade, he continued to work as a journalist while traveling in Europe and crystallizing his Zionist views, which tended to be uncompromising and political rather than cultural. So Jabotinsky butted heads. His version of Zionism butted heads with the elites on the other side of Zionism, the ones who had already gained power, people like David Ben-Gurion and Haim Weizmann, those people. While they wanted to handle everything through cronyism and political means, Jabotinsky wanted to take it by force, and the David Ben-Gurions and the Haim Weizmans at first were against this, okay? They thought it would backfire. But as Jabotinsky's groups began to enact these terrorist plots, the other side started to come around. They said, wait a minute, it seems like we're getting our way more and more with this violence. So he was eventually welcomed and taken in, and now he's lauded among one of the top Zionists and Israeli leaders ever. It says here, too, that during World War I, he was convinced that the Ottoman Empire, then the ruling power in Palestine, would fall and that in this vacuum, the Jews could colonize Palestine if they had demonstrated service to the Allies. He thus convinced the British government to allow military participation by Jewish refugees from the Ottoman Empire. Now again, this is your cookie-cutter Encyclopedia Britannica explanations. There's a lot more to all this, which we will talk about, but I just want to give you an idea, okay? In 1920, Jabotinsky organized and led a self-defense movement called the Haganah against the Arabs in Palestine. The British, who then ruled the country, sentenced him to 15 years at hard labor, but this action provoked such an outcry that he was soon reprieved. In the 1920s, he was active in many international Zionist organizations, including the World Union of Zionist Revisionists in 1925. Jabotinsky gave an impassioned expression of his revisionist views. The source of Jewish suffering was not merely anti-Semitism, he said, but the diaspora, or dispersion, itself. The Jews were a stateless people, assigning cultural Zionism a relatively low priority. He advocated creation of a Palestinian Jewish state on both sides of the Jordan with continued Jewish immigration to achieve a Jewish majority there. 
and employment of Jewish troops for self-defense as part of the permanent garrison. In 1940, while in the United States to visit the Beitar, a youth movement organization of the Zionist Revisionist Party, Jabotinsky died of a heart attack. His followers, who had already founded the Ergun Zvi Lumi terrorist group, active in Palestine in the 1940s, later founded the Israeli Herut Party. Now, it goes into the Haganah, the Zionist military organization. Haganah means defense in Hebrew. Zionist military organization representing the majority of the Jews in Palestine from the years 1920 to 1948. Organized to combat the revolts of the Palestinian Arabs against the Jewish settlement of Palestine, it early came under the influence of the Histodrut, or the General Federation of Labor, although it was outlawed by British mandatory authorities and was poorly armed it managed effectively to defend Jewish settlements. Of course, we got to go back and remember from the first episode that there were 850,000 Palestinians in the area in the late 1800s, early 1900s. There was something like 2 to 3% Jews. So that's a big, big change that you want the Jewish population to be the majority. The Haganah's activities were moderate, at least until the end of World War II, in accord with the organized Jewish community's policies of the Havlaga, or self-restraint. It opposed political philosophy and terrorist activities of the Erguzvi Lumi and the Stern Gang, which we will talk about too. The general membership of the Haganah served up a part-time basis in 1941, a full-time commando force, the Paul Mech Hebrew, acronym for Plugit Machats, shock companies, was organized. After World War II, the British refused to open Palestine to unlimited Jewish immigration. The Haganah turned to terrorist activities, bombing bridges, rail lines, and ships used to deport illegal Jewish immigrants. After the United Nations' decision to partition Palestine in 1947, the Haganah came into the open as the defense force of the Jewish state. It clashed openly with British forces and successfully overcame the military forces of the Palestinian Arabs and their allies. By the time of the creation of the State of Israel in 48, the Haganah controlled not only most of the settled areas allocated to Israel by the partition, but also such Arab cities as Akko or Acre and Yafo as Jaffa, by order of the Provisional Government of Israel, May 31, 1948, the Haganah, as a private organization, was dissolved and became the National Army of the State. Its name is perpetuated in the official name of the Israeli Armed Services, the Zva Haganah Le Israel, or the Israel Defense Forces. Again, this is the cookie-cutter history here, but we need to know this so we can build off of it. In the 16th and 17th centuries, a number of messiahs came forward trying to persuade Jews to return to Palestine. The Haskalah, or the Jewish Enlightenment, which we mentioned in the Illuminati episodes, was a movement of the late 18th century. However, it urged Jews to assimilate into Western secular culture. In the early 19th century, interest in a return of the Jews to Palestine was kept alive mostly by the Christian millenarians. Despite the Haskalah, Eastern European Jews did not assimilate and in reaction to the Tsarist pogroms, formed the Hoveve Zion, or the Lovers of Zion, to promote the settlement of the Jewish farmers and artisans in Palestine. Well, if we think back, if you listen to the other episodes, we actually know that the Rothschilds funded the farmers and the artisans there in Palestine early on and began to make settlements. Now it goes on. A political turn was given to Zionism by Theodor Herzl, the father of Zionism, an Austrian journalist who regarded assimilation as most desirable, but in view of anti-Semitism, impossible to realize. That's not exactly true. Thus he argued if Jews were forced by external pressure to form a nation, 
they could lead a normal existence through the concentration in one territory. In 1897, Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress at Basel, Switzerland, which drew up the Basel program of the movement, stating that Zionism strived to create the Jewish people a home in Palestine secured by public law. Isn't that interesting, guys? I think I mentioned this on one of the other shows, but Basel is the place where the Bank for International Settlements resides, and it was created under a treaty supposedly to oversee the reparations paid by Germany to all the other countries, and it was an insane amount that no country could ever pay, and it's untouchable because it was signed into law by that treaty. So the Bank for International Settlements, again, if you haven't listened to that episode I did on that, they are the bank for all the other central banks. They worked with the Nazis. They worked with the Zionists. They worked with the Soviets. It doesn't matter. Even when the wars were going on, they still worked with both sides. They worked with New York. They worked with the Rockefellers. It doesn't matter. But that's just an aside. We'll go on here. The center of the movement was established in Vienna, where Herzl published the official Die Welt, or The World. Zionist Congress met yearly until 1901, and then every two years. When the Ottoman government refused Herzl's request for the Palestinian autonomy, he found support in Great Britain. In 1903, the British government offered 6,000 square miles of uninhabited land of Uganda for settlement, but the Zionists held out for Palestine. Now, I think we talked about how actually Herzl couldn't understand why they wouldn't take these various offers from other countries. He said, you know, it's crazy. We need a place to be safe, and you guys won't take it. So he was a little bit more reasonable than some of the Zionists. At the death of Herzl in 1904, the leadership moved from Vienna to Cologne and then to Berlin. I just want to say that Herzl died pretty young, and it made me wonder if perhaps there was something nefarious going on there because he could have rubbed somebody the wrong way by trying to accept some of these offers that the Zionists did not want to accept, but who knows. So we'll continue. Prior to World War I, Zionism represented only a minority of Jews, mostly from Russia. Isn't that interesting? But led by Austrians and Germans. And again, we know that the majority of the early Zionists were Ashkenazi Jews, and their bloodline actually goes back to Eastern Europe. But going on, it developed propaganda through orators and pamphlets, created its own newspapers, and gave impetus to what was called a Jewish renaissance in letters and arts. The development of the modern Hebrew language largely took place during that period. Then it gets a little bit into the Rothschilds part. Okay, so we will stop reading here. Like I said, this is kind of your average run-of-the-mill kind of history, but it helps us to understand, and then we'll build from there. And I got this awesome book that I've been reading called 50 Jewish Messiahs. And it's talking about how there's been 50 Messiahs since the death of Jesus, and they didn't consider Jesus, of course, a Messiah Really, really fascinating stuff that we'll talk about in some later episodes, but we might mention a few of the things I've learned in this one as well. Now, let's look at this organization, this group of terrorists that Vladimir Jabotinsky, later changed to Ziev Jabotinsky, led. It says the Irgun, short for Irgun Zvi Lumi, Hebrew for National Military Organization, had its roots initially in the Beitar Youth Movement in Poland, which Jabotinsky founded. By the 1940s, they had transplanted many of its members from Europe and the United States to Palestine. The movement, now acting autonomously from the Hatz Zohar leadership in Poland, decided to organize locally as its small membership was increasingly overshadowed by labor Zionists who were predominantly focused on settling the land. While Jabotinsky continued to lobby the British Empire, the Irgun, under the leadership of people such as David Raziel and later Menachem Begin, fought politically against the labor Zionists and British military for the establishment of a Jewish state independent of any orders from Jabotinsky. Now we're going to read 
from a book called Jabotinsky's Children, which is one of his biographies, very interesting stuff. Acting often in conflict, but at times also in coordination with rival clandestine militias such as the Haganah and the Leahy or Stern Group, the Irgun's efforts would feature prominently in the armed struggles against British and Arab forces alike in the 1930s and 1940s and ultimately become decisive in the closing events of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. After 1948, members of the Aragoon were variously demobilized or incorporated directly into the nascent Israeli defense forces, and on the political front, the Aragoonist ideology found a new vehicle of expression in the Harut or Freedom Party. During the 1936-1939 Arab Revolt in Palestine against Mandatory Palestine, the militant Zionist group Aragoon carried out 60 attacks against Palestinian people and the British Army. Aragoon was described as a terrorist organization by the New York Times, the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry, prominent world figures such as Winston Churchill, and the Jewish figures such as Hannah Arendt, Albert Einstein, and many others. The Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs described it as an underground organization. The New York Times at the time cited sources in an investigative piece which linked the Haganah paramilitary group to Aragon's attacks such as the King David Hotel bombing. And we'll look more into the King David Hotel bombing, but British officers were stationed there using the King David Hotel, and they bombed the shit out of it. Killed almost 100 people. The Aragon launched a series of attacks which lasted until the founding of Israel. All told, Aragon attacks against Arab targets resulted in at least 250 Arab deaths. Aragon conducted at least 60 operations altogether during this period. Now we go to the Times of Israel, which is a conservative news outlet there, and I think a gatekeeper for a lot of the people like Benjamin Netanyahu and whatnot, but that's just my opinion. But I was surprised to see this actually in this paper here. It says, The London AP, The call to British military security forces came early in the morning, shortly after 1 a.m., and could not be ignored. The informant's message was alarming. Assassins planned to kill the commander of British forces in Palestine the following morning, evasive action was needed. The source didn't know the details of the plan, but warned that that General Evelyn Barker would be attacked on the brief journey between his home in Jerusalem and his office at the British headquarters. The assailants were militant Jews from the Stern Gang, determined to drive the British from the land in their bid for Jewish sovereignty. Before dawn broke on November 14, 1946, according to the secret documents declassified Wednesday by the National Archives, Barker's security team was notified of the imminent threat. He changed his route and other special precautions were put in place and he arrived without incident. Barker was particularly controversial because of his incendiary comments after militants bombed Jerusalem's King David Hotel, used by the British as a political and military base in July 1946, when Britain was still the administrative power in Palestine under an arrangement worked out in 1920, but was increasingly unable to control events as Jews and Arabs sought control. The King David Hotel blast killed more than 90 people and infuriated Barker, whose offices were in the hotel. And it killed civilians as well. It even killed some Jews. I was actually watching a documentary about it, and they were interviewing people who were actually part of the Irgun and the Stern Gangs and different people like that, who were part of these terrorist groups. And there was one guy, he was saying, we should have done more. We should have blew up more people. We would have gotten Israel faster. You know, another guy said similar things. I was like, it's horrible. A lot of these people were innocent people. And again, even if you don't like the British government, you were killing their soldiers who had just helped you to get into Palestine. So kind of messed up if you ask me. But it goes on to say that Barker reacted by banning British troops from having any social or business dealings with Jews, saying that they would be punished in a way the race dislikes as much as any by striking at their pockets and showing our contempt for them. I mean, what can you expect, though? They blew up the place where the guy's offices were and killed a bunch of his guys. 
but I'll go on. The plot against Barker is only one of hundreds of plans described in the newly public files that detail how British officials were tormented by the militants. The official British attitude towards the Jewish underground is summed up on the file's title page, Jewish Terrorist Activities in the Middle East. British influence was waning, and the militants sensed a lack of resolve that could be exploited, said Saul Zadka, author of Blood in Zion, how the Jewish guerrillas drove the British out of Palestine. They realized getting rid of the British was the key to establishing Jewish sovereignty in Palestine, he said. The British didn't have an endgame. They didn't know what to do, and the insurgents' operations affected the morale of the armed forces very badly. The British papers were saying, if you can't control Palestine, just get out. And it was very expensive to keep 100,000 soldiers there. So overall, holding on to Palestine was not worth it. The cost was too high. It is clear from the files that the British were rattled by the constant threat of attack and by fears the violence would spread from the Middle East to Europe and particularly to Britain itself. A July 4, 1946 letter from Colonel Maurice Oldenfield to military headquarters warns that two people on the Jewish terrorist list seem to have infiltrated Paris via an Air France flight. This indicates a weakness in our controls, he said, raising concerns that many more people supposedly being watched may already, unbeknown to us, be scattered throughout Europe. There's a specific warning from British intelligence to Belgian authorities about five individuals planning a mission. There is also exchanges between British intelligence and the FBI about the activities of Jewish commandos in New York City. The operational challenge facing British security officials in 1946 was in some ways similar to the ones faced today as Europe's intelligence agencies tried to keep Islamic extremists from entering Europe to launch attacks against civilians. So there it is, guys. You understand that it wasn't the Muslims who invented modern terrorism. Sorry to break it to you. The files contain an official top-secret request for special attention, security check, all Jews traveling to UK because of the security threat posed by the Stern Gang. Stern Gang is another one of these militant gangs. The files also reveal how closely British Secret Service tracked relations between militant groups like the Stern Gang and the Argoon amid fears the rival groups would start to cooperate on joint attacks. A secret note written on April 14, 1947, warns that a reliable source had told British agents about an agreement between the Stern Gang and the Argoon to coordinate policy and plans. The main point is that the terrorist activities are not to be confined only to Palestine, but will take place also in the UK, France, and Italy, the note says, adding that certain Jewish terrorists have already arrived in the port city of Alexandria, Egypt, and have purchased a 200-ton ship to be used to transport weapons. I don't know, I'm seeing shades of Ukraine here. The plots described were many and varied, including a failed plan by militants to blow up the British destroyer Chevron off the coast of Haffa. The files indicate that the plotters left a bag of primed explosives and detonators on board and were later arrested on land with concealed explosives. The files also detail successful kidnappings carried out by the gangs. The sporadic but deadly attacks spawned extensive British discussions about whether Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan could travel safely to Cairo without undue risk of assassination. Let me just say this too. This was the kind of thing that was going on in Germany before World War II. There were Bolsheviks there, and they were pulling these terrorist activities. This has been well documented, and I'm going to talk about it eventually on an episode. And finishing up... Many attacks were relatively minor, involving small arms fire, grenades, improvised explosives, and landmines, but the campaign clearly made it hard for the British to conduct normal business without adding layers of protection. Railways, bridges, government facilities, and officers' clubs were all targeted. They did target an officers' club. There is actually footage of the aftermath, and there was a witness who said that It was just horrible. He said he was talking to a girl who was Jewish. She was the secretary at that particular place. And he saw her headless body after that. So it was pretty pretty terrible stuff. 
they were willing to kill their own people to try and get their way. The State of Israel was proclaimed in 1948. Some of the militants went on to become influential figures, including future Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who would sign the landmark Camp David Peace Accords in 1978, and Yitzhak Shamir. I really am amazed that the Times of Israel posted this. It's pretty wild, because they usually seem like they're hardcore apologists for the Zionists, but hey, good on them for telling the truth. I mean, these kind of things need to be told. If people really want to know what happened, they really want to know how everything came together, then this is a big part of it. You know, they mentioned Menachem Begin, who was an Israeli PM, who was one of the leaders of one of those groups, the Argun. Now let's look at one of Israeli's oldest newspapers, the Haaretz. Some people say this is their liberal newspaper, but it's been in print, I think, since 1919, if I'm not mistaken. And they will actually tell you some of the bad things that happened, especially some of the historical stuff. The title of this article is When Jews Praised Mussolini and Supported Nazis. Meet Israeli's First Fascists. I'm going to pop down to about the center for the article part that I want to look at. It says here, A fascist group gradually took shape in the revisionist Zionist group. The beginning was modest. Like many others in the mid-1920s, Itamar Ben-Avi, the son of Eliezer Ben-Yehuda, the reviver of the Hebrew language, and the editor of the newspaper, Duar Hayam, expressed a liking and even an admiration for Mussolini and his actions. Unlike other journalists at the time, he longed for a strong, assertive leader in the Yeshuv and found him in the person of Ziev Jabotinsky. Another such person, a novice commentator, who began his political and journalistic career in socialist circles, and at the time, the newspaper of the left, Hapoel Hatzair, and who was by the late 1920s writing a regular column for Doar Hayam, titled From the Notebook of a Fascist, was Abba Ahamir, together with an intellectual who was disappointed in socialist circles, a writer and a poet named Yuri Zvi Greenberg, and the physician and essayist Joshua Heskel Yevin, Ahamir established a group of young people called Brit Habir Yonim, the Zealots Alliance, whose aim was to get the country's youth to see the light about nationalism. The ideas espoused by the trio, leaders of the Maximilist faction in the revisionist movement, were given expression in the press. After a period of the late 1920s when they managed and effectively edited the newspaper Duar Hayam, in 1930 they founded Hayam, which became Hazit Hayam, or the People's Front, the following year. The worldview of this triumvirate entailed constantly treading on the brink of crisis and concern about an ongoing threat to the Yeshuv and the Zionist enterprise. They saw the Jews as a whole, and the Zionists in particular, as historical victims in Europe and also in the land of Israel. In their perception, their movement arose from the silence-stricken battlefields of World War I, in Yevon's words. Accordingly, they had only contempt for liberals, moderates, and whoever harbored notions of reaching compromises with either the Arabs or the British. Their glorification of political violence primarily as used against socialists and communists, but also against liberals and opponents in general, dovetailed well with their fondness for extreme right-wing circles in Europe. They made no secret of their aspiration for a single adored leader. In a meeting of the revisionist movement in Vienna in the summer of 1932, another member of the group, Wolfgang von Weisel, proposed that Jabotinsky be declared the movement's supreme leader invested with unlimited authority. Jabotinsky rejected the idea. The other group, Brit Haberyanum, fell apart at the end of 1933 when Ahemir and two other revisionist activists, Zvi Rosenblatt and Avram Stavsky, were accused of assassinating Haim Arlo Soroff, a labor Zionist leader, in June of that year. Ahemir was acquitted of the murder charge, but was convicted of heading an illegal organization and sentenced to two years in prison. The paper, Doar Hayam, 
was also shut down and seized publication. Now check this out. The Brit Haberjanum was active for only a short time, but its partial support for Hitlerite politics in Germany in the spring of 1933, as expressed in the newspaper Hazet Hayam, and which infuriated Jabotinsky, was of even shorter duration. A few members of the movement even carried out a protest against the Nazi government and stole the swastika bearing flag from the German consulate in Tel Aviv. But in contrast, the revisionist movement's ties with Mussolini's regime lasted until 1938, when Italy enacted race laws resembling those promulgated by the Nazis. Along with the cadets of the revisionist movement's naval school, which operated, check this out, from 1935 to 1937 in the town of Civitavecchia under the auspices of the Italian fascist regime. Additional young revisionists were students in Italian universities. Now, as I said before, when uh, Jabotinsky, the founder of Zionist revisionism, he wanted the Zionists to revise, to demand that the British revise their policy, and the Zionist, the World Zionist Organization wouldn't do it. So he decided to go looking for another mandatory to take over from Britain in Palestine, all right? Well, who was the only one who was even, could even possibly do that was Mussolini in Italy. Finally, in 1935, Mussolini invited Jabotinsky's youth group called Betar and had them, had cadets from Betar trained at Mussolini's Naval Academy. Okay, that's the equivalent of Annapolis in the United States, all right? And what literally happened was that they, they had about, over a period of about a year or so, 130 guys trained on ships and so on by Mussolini. I don't mean, and they literally, Mussolini came, when they, when they opened up their squadron, at his academy, he came, you know, as a sign of, you know, his friendship, etc. and they wrote it up, and their report on their uh, squadron at, at Civitavecchia is in the book. And who is the political heirs in modern Israel to uh, Jabotinsky's ah. people? Literally, Net Bibi Benjamin, that's the Hebrew for Benjamin, Bibi Netanyahu, his father, Netanyahu's father, was Vladimir Jabotinsky's secretary. Okay, so in other words, this ain't no secret, you know, he can't say, I didn't know, you know, okay? Let's put it this way. They were so pro-fascist that at least 35 of them actually joined the Mussolini's university student group. In other words, they weren't just pro-fascist, they joined the Italian fascist party. That's how fascist they were. Now, um, they're... And, and all the while, uh, Mussolini is, is ravaging Ethiopia. And so rav now, a, while the war was going on in Ethiopia, the Zionist revisionist movement, that's Netanyahu's father's movement, I, you know, I'm, I'm emphasizing this now, they marched in parades, they collected tin cans, to be used, you know, uh, you know, when I say tin, I mean, you know, metal cans to be used during the war. Uh, uh, this sounds strange to us, but the same thing went on in America during World War II. I mean, I remember collecting cans for, for, as a kid for the American government during World War II, you know. And these guys were collecting for the other side. For, they were collecting for Mussolini, yeah. And they marched in his victory parades. That was Stan Heller interviewing the Jewish historian and author Lenny Brenner. And you can find that series of interviews. There's like, I think, nine or ten of them on YouTube, Stan Heller 55. 
Now, I'll put those in the show notes, but you have to understand, Lenny Brenner wrote the book Zionism in the Age of the Dictators. And he also wrote another book after that called 51 Documents, Zionist Collaboration with the Nazis. And he wrote other books as well. But in those books, he proves by the documents, by the footnotes and references, that the Zionists were collaborating with the Nazis, among other things. So these are two very, very important books. And if you can't find them, contact me. I may know where you can find them online. Now, I may not agree with all of Lenny's policies and philosophies, but when someone writes something so detailed and easily proven by the references, then you got to respect that. And so I suggest everyone check those two books out. Another graduate of the University of Florence in that decade was Avram Stern. Following his return to Palestine, he rose through the ranks of the Aragon Zvi Lumi, the revisionist national military organization that we talked about before. But after World War II broke out, he left the Irgun and established a separate group called the Lehi, an acronym for Fighters for Freedom of Israel, known also as the Stern Gang. Ideologically, Stern envisaged in his writings and in his manifesto Principles of Birth, a national resurgence that corresponded closely with the fascist models of the period, even if in a very romanticized version. In the practical sphere, Stern sought cooperation with the Axis forces in the struggle against the British Mandate. In January 1941, following a failed attempt to make contact with the Italian representation in Palestine, Stern sent one of his people to approach the German representative in Beirut. That effort also came to nothing in a large measure due to the cost-benefit calculations of the German foreign ministry, but did prompt the British to step up their hunt for both Stern and members of his organization. Remember that the Stern gang or the Lehi and the Irgun were terrorists and they'd been attacking the British soldiers and various Arabs goes on to say, were the ties between the revisionist movement and the fascist regimes based on deep, authentic affinity or only a shared interest in the struggle against Britain's rule in the Mediterranean? In the case of Jabotinsky, who was far from being a socialist but espoused the importance and application of liberal democratic values, it can be assumed that it was a temporary nexus of interests. Now, I think that is absolutely false, and we'll read from the Jabotinsky biography how false that was. But to judge the speeches, articles, songs, and motions for the agenda of the members of the circle advocating a maximalist approach in Palestine and afterward of the Aragon, its members viewed fascism as a worthy and even desirable path to follow. Hebrew fascism in the era died out in 1942 between Florentine and El Alamein. In February of that year, in a small apartment in the Florentine neighborhood of South Tel Aviv, Stern was apprehended and murdered on the spot by British police. In November, the Axis forces were defeated in North Africa. Even if this was not the beginning of the end, as Winston Churchill maintained, it was the end of the beginning. The ascendancy of fascism on the world stage was curbed. Its prestige faded, and its aura was significantly dimmed. For decades after 1945, fascism was considered opprobrious, unfit for decent society, not a captivating perfume, but a bad smell to be gotten rid of. So I know that was a lot to read. There's more to that, but it's kind of links to more modern politics. But what we need to understand is these groups were fascist, and we'll talk more about that again in the Jabotinsky books because there are quotes in there of these Jewish groups bragging about fascism, calling each other fascists, bragging about Mussolini and whatnot. So there was a fascination with fascism on the part of various Jewish groups and individuals. Now, let's read a little bit more about Jabotinsky, since he is such an important figure now in Judaism and Israel. Jabotinsky was also an admirer of Italian fascist Benito Mussolini, his idea was to create a Zionist military group based on fascist principles. 
The Beitar Naval Academy was a Jewish naval training school established in Civitavecchia, Italy, in 1934 by the revisionist Zionist movement under the direction of Z.F. Jabotinsky, with the agreement of Benito Mussolini. The titular head of the academy was the Italian maritime scientist Nicola Fusco, but Beitar leader Jeremiah Halpern ran the school and was its driving force. The academy trained cadets from all over Europe, Palestine, and South Africa and produced some of the future commanders of the Israeli Navy. So you have to think about it. This is Benito Mussolini, who's a huge fascist. This is Italy, fascism there. And this Jewish group are training on the base with these fascists. Although the revisionists were keen to ensure that the trainees avoided local fascist politics, the cadets did express public support for Benito Mussolini's regime. As Halpern later detailed in his book, History of Hebrew Seamanship, Cadets marched alongside Italian soldiers in support of the Second Italo-Abyssinian War and collected metal scraps for the Italian weapons industry. They felt as if they were living the true Betarist's life in an atmosphere of heroism, militarism, and nationalistic pride. The Academy closed in 1938. Numerous sources, including pro-Jabotinsky books, state that Jabotinsky's troops often addressed him with the Zeg Hell salute and even called him the Jewish Hitler or the Jewish Ildus. Jabotinsky was originally from Russia, but said in his autobiography that he has always thought of Rome as his home instead of the land he was born in. Let's look a little bit closer at some of Jabotinsky's thoughts here. Jabotinsky admits in his autobiography... If I have a spiritual homeland, it is Italy, much more than Russia. All my views on nationalism, the state, and society were developed during those years under Italian influence. It was there that I learned to love the art of architecture, the sculptor, and the painter, as well as the Latin song. At the university, my teachers were Antonio Labriola and Enrico Ferri, and the belief in the justice of the socialist system, which they implanted in my heart, I kept as self-evident until it became utterly destroyed by the red experience in Russia. The legend of Garibaldi, the writings of Mazzini, the poetry of Leopardi and Giusti have enriched and deepened my superficial Zionism. From an instinctive feeling, they made it into a doctrine. Author Shmuel Katz, a leader of Ergun, the Jewish terrorist movement against the British occupation of Palestine, who traveled with Jabotinsky as his personal secretary for part of 1937, said this, Jabotinsky's Zionism was existentialism, and he chose to recruit followers by attacking traditional Judaism. In 1907, he and a handful of collaborators formed the Raz Viet, or New Dawn, a Jewish weekly in St. Petersburg, Russia. It became the organ of the revisionist movement. Ergunist, Author Katz described Razviet as making a revolution in the thought and the mood of the Russian Jewish community. Now here is an interesting link that I've talked about before on social media, but I want you to hear this. Benjamin Netanyahu's father changed the family last name from Mylakowski to Netanyahu after moving to Israel from Poland. Benjamin Netanyahu's father was Benzion, Benzion Netanyahu previously Malikowski, Polish-born Israeli historian and Zionist activist. He was born on March 25, 1910, in the Warsaw Russian Empire, now Poland. He died on April 30, 2012, in Jerusalem. He was the father, of course, of Benjamin Netanyahu and a longtime advocate and secretary of none other than Vladimir Jabotinsky, or Zev Jabotinsky whose uncompromising Zionist revisionist movement was pivotal in fighting for the state of Israel. Jabotinsky in Righteous Victims said, There's no justice, no law, and no God in heaven. Only a single law which decides and supersedes all Jewish settlement of the land. He also said in Expulsion of the Palestinians on page 29, Arabs must make room for Jews. If it was possible to transfer the Baltic peoples, 
it is also possible to transfer the Palestinians. The elder Netanyahu rejected a two-state solution, as well as the possibility of political compromise between Jews and Arabs, and he publicly criticized his son's apparent willingness to make concessions to foster peace with Palestinians. Netanyahu was the son of a Zionist rabbi who moved his family to British-mandated Palestine in 1920 and changed their name from Mylikowski. Ben Zion said in an interview in 2009, There are no two peoples here. There is a Jewish people and an Arab population. There is no Palestinian people, so you don't create a state for an imaginary nation. They only call themselves a people in order to fight the Jews. Yet, there were 800 plus thousand of them there before the Rothschilds and the Zionists started taking over. Benjamin Netanyahu actually went to Cheltenham High School in Philly, PA. And the government of Israel loved Jabotinsky so much that they moved his body from New York to Mount Herzl in Israel. And we'll get more into these terrorist acts that these guys, the Stern Gang and the Aragoon, pulled off. I wanted to just read a little bit of how important Jabotinsky is, though. It doesn't matter that he killed those innocent people. It was all to get the Israelis back in Israel, in Palestine. The day was enshrined into Israeli law on March 23, 2005, when the Knesset enacted the Jabotinsky Law to instill for generations the vision, legacy, and work of Ziev Jabotinsky to mark his memory and to bring about the education of future generations and to shape the state of Israel, its institutions, its objectives, and its character in accordance with the Zionist vision. A state memorial service is held every year at the Jabotinsky tomb on Mount Herzl. On Thursday, the event will be attended by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Reuven Rivlin. The Knesset also holds a special hearing to commemorate the day, and the IDF bases throughout the country also hold lectures and services to mark the occasion. And here is a headline from the Jewish Telegraph Agency. Israelis exhume Jabotinsky's body and move it from New York to Mount Herzl in Israel. In the great synagogue at Tel Aviv, stolen uniforms of many British regiments and bales of forged bearer bonds of the Palestine government have been discovered, in addition to a portable radio transmitter and quantities of illegal weapons and explosives. All this came to light when a false wall in the synagogue was found. The Jewish temple keeper was placed under arrest. 200,000 Jews are being checked by two divisions of British troops and Palestine police. 25,000 people are being interrogated each day. Our troops, in sternly guarded surroundings, are looking for members of the notorious Yagun Sfaili and the Stern Gang, suspected of blowing up the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. People with an obvious reason to rejoice are the Arabs who express themselves in a dance of jubilation. Continuing their ruthless hunt for terror gangs, British military authorities come out Tel Aviv, Palestine's largest Jewish city and the suspected center of terrorist activity. Cut off from the outside world during the four-day roundup, the people of Tel Aviv could only leave their homes for two hours daily in order to buy food. Apart from that, the city was under complete curfew. House-to-house searches are carried out and every single member of the population carefully checked. Nothing must be left to chance. Precautions are rewarded by the discovery of cunningly hidden dumps of arms. This collection was concealed under the floors of a school. Not only guns and ammunition, but British uniforms too were in the possession of this illegal army. Behind barbed wire, suspected persons are held for further questioning as the drive goes on to rid Palestine of a threatened reign of terror. Jewish writer Richard Silverstein has an interesting article here. It says... Israel's Stern Gang mailed letter bomb to White House, President Truman. In 1947, the Yeshiv was in turmoil. David Ben-Gurion was pursuing his plan to declare a Jewish state. 
He was competing with Jewish extremists who had their own plans to free Palestine from the yoke of the British Empire. When Ben-Gurion saw them as dangerous rivals, he also knew that they were a bad cop to his good cop. Their mere existence on the havoc they wreaked on the British colonial apparatus made Ben-Gurion look moderate in comparison. As such, they were exceedingly useful. The fact that Ben-Gurion pardoned many of these terrorists for their crimes after the state was founded and prosecuted either indicates that he either colluded with them directly or that they served his purposes so well that he felt compelled to forgive them. At the same time all this was happening, the UN was pursuing its own plan to partition the region into Jewish and Arab enclaves. The Jewish extremists of the Aragon, and particularly the splinter group Lehi, or a.k.a. the Stern Gang, felt Ben-Gurion's way was too accommodationist. They believed there was little to be gained from negotiating with colonial power. Instead, they sought to drive the British to their knees and in this way forced them to abandon the mandate and free Palestine. And it's actually got a picture of the British Mandate Wanted posters of Yitzhak Shamir, Nathan Yellen Moore, and Avram Stern. I believe that Yitzhak went on to be either a PM or a president of Israel. Leahy, or the Stern Gang, in particular, engaged much like the PLO of the 1970s in spectacular acts of terror. The former specialty was assassination. Their most shocking attack was the Cairo murder of Lord Moyne. This is a really sad thing, actually. They also assassinated Count Folk von Bernadotte, the Swedish royal who saved Jewish lives during the Holocaust and was appointed by the UN to further negotiations between the parties toward accepting the partition. There were also spectacular failures like a series of letter bombs sent to the homes and offices of the current and former ministers and other senior British officials. Several of them exploded wounding Postal Service employees or government staff. None, thankfully, ever injured their intended targets. Historically, we've known that the Jewish terrorists targeted the British, but much less known is that they also expanded their targets to American officials. Both Margaret Truman and the chief of the White House mailroom wrote separate books, hers a biography of her father, and the mailroom chief a memoir about his decades of service in the job to several presidents. Both noted that in 1947, a series of mail bombs were discovered and detonated by the Secret Service before they reached their intended victims. At least one of these was sent directly to the president and marked private and confidential in order to guarantee it reached its target. This is a quote from Truman's daughter in her book. In the summer of 1947, the so-called Stern Gang, or the Leahy, the Israeli terrorists, tried to assassinate Dad by mail. A number of cream-colored envelopes, about 8 by 6 inches, arrived in the White House, addressed to the President and various members of the staff. Inside them was a smaller envelope, marked Private and Confidential. Inside that second envelope was the powdered gelgenite, a pencil battery, and a detonator rigged to explode the gelgenite when the envelope was opened. Fortunately, the White House mailroom was alert to the possibility that such letters might arrive. The previous June, at least eight were sent to British government officials, including Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan and former Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden. The British police exploded one of these experimentally and said it could kill or at least maim anyone unlucky enough to open it. The mailroom turned the letters over to the Secret Service, and they were diffused by their bomb experts. After the Truman's book was published, Nathan Yellen Moore, the last chief of Leahy, denounced Truman and this story. He called her claim false and dared her to sue him in court. Yellen Moore was either a fool or a very smart lawyer, because there is no way any author can sue you if you claim a story in his or her book is false. What would be the grounds? You are expressing your opinion, which is protected speech. On the contrary, Yellen Moore could have sued Truman for libel and sought to prove that her claim was false and that she knew it was false. That's called libel. But of course, Yellen Moore knew he'd lose that fight, so he didn't go there. 
The Leahy boss argued that his organization had no reason to attack the U.S. because Israel needed all the allies it could muster in its fight to become an independent state. That claim is disingenuous because Truman was never an enthusiastic supporter of the state of Israel. In fact, he made numerous statements that indicated his profound skepticism that the new country could lead to any peaceful resolution of the conflict. While it is true he finally did acquiesce and permitted his representatives to vote in favor of the U.N. resolution and that the U.S. did recognize the new state, Leahy could know nothing of this in 1947. And we know that Truman actually came around because he needed funding and he got funding from one of the Zionists. Had Leahy dissolved into oblivion after 1948, then none of this would matter, especially. But Yitzhak Shamir, the Leahy commander, and Menachem Begin, their goon commander, went on to become prime ministers of Israel. Their successors have assumed the mantle of leadership and led Israel for much of the past 40 years. Israel has become the state that embodies the vision of these former Israeli terrorists. Assassination eventually becomes one of the signature Israeli methods of ridding the world of political enemies among the Arabs. To this day, Mossad and Shabak engage in murder as state policy. Then he suggests you read his new Mint Press article portraying the assassination of Omar Zayed by Yossi Cohen's Mossad. And to finish up quickly, what Menachem Begin accomplished on a relatively small scale at Der Yasin, which was a massacre on the Palestinians, Ben-Gurion accomplished on a large scale at the Nagba. Israel's subsequent wars of conquest in 1956 and 1967 and Israel's military adventurism in Gaza and Lebanon since the turn of the century are of a piece with the early terrorist vision of an Israeli garrison state dominated by the region and imposing its will on anyone daring to disagree. Again, that's Richard Silverstein. All right, guys, that concludes Those We Don't Speak Of Part 5, and I hope that you enjoyed that. I just want to let you know, I think this is important to talk about because these men that led these terrorist groups, went on to be prominent figures in the Israeli government. Many of them did. So I think that needs to be pointed out because there is a direct relation to how they handled things ever since. And not many people are aware of this history. So I think it's important that we share this with each other. This whole series is important to share, I believe. So please do that. Word of mouth is great. Share it online. Leave me a good review on whatever platform you listen to this on if you can. And if you want to become a supporter, you can do that on patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. Now, I want to thank my patrons quickly. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus from the Daily Ruckus on alternatecurrentradio.com. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. Ruckus is a great podcaster. He's kind of a radio podcasting legend. And you can also check his show with Joseph Arthur out. On TNT Radio, Joseph Arthur's Technicolor Dreamcast. Joseph's a cool dude as well. Those guys are great together. I want to thank them. I want to thank No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Refsad, Jay, Chris. Thank you, Mark from Housatonic Live. Check out Mark's fabulous YouTube channel. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, also a producer of the show. Thank you, Peterson. Thank you, Rooster. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Please check out Jack's fabulous show as well. And also, I want to thank John William Brisson, okay? John got his YouTube nuked by the commies at YouTube recently, and he had so much content on there, so much information that was educational. And John is one of those guys who really puts the time in to find out what's wrong and what's right. He uncovers things like nobody else, and that's why he calls it We've Read the Documents. So get over to Twitter at Weave underscore Red and follow John and look at his profile there. He'll have his link tree where you can follow his other platforms because, like I said, the YouTube is gone, unfortunately. I will also put his link tree in my show notes as well as his Twitter. So look for that, please, and help a brother out. Okay, so thank you guys so much. I also want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com for being my podcasting home. 
please check out their fine shows over there. They have many talk shows as well as music shows. And, of course, the flagship show, The Boiler Room, which I got to be on last Thursday, and we had a great show, I think. So definitely check that out at alternatecurrentradio.com. You can also find the podcast there as well as The Daily Ruckus. Now, with that being said, guys, I look forward to bringing you more content very soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. Although in times of comparative peace, Jews and Arabs live side by side and go about their business in the old city of Jerusalem with apparent calm, beneath the surface, bitter enmity has continued to smolder for years. This is the Wailing Wall, where many Jews have been offering special prayers following the latest outrage by terrorists. And these are scenes in the modern part of the city, contrasting vividly with the old Jerusalem. The King David Hotel itself. It was in the wing on the right of the picture that the terrorists placed their explosive. And the result of the crime, the tragic scene, is like a serious incident during the Blitz. The hotel housed the British Army headquarters and the Palestine government offices, and casualties were very heavy. 65 deaths are reported, and there is little or no hope of survival for any of the 58 missing. Nearly 50 others were injured. The Jewish terrorist organization, Egunzwai Leomi, openly admitted responsibility for the bombing. Many arrests have been made. Leaders of the Jewish agency have expressed horror at the dastardly crime perpetrated by a gang of desperados. Mr. Attlee in the House of Commons declared, the British government will not be diverted by acts of violence in their search for a just and final solution of the Palestine problem. President Truman, condemning the wanton act of terrorism, added that America and Britain are conferring on steps to be taken to implement the report of the Anglo-American Palestine Committee. Undoubtedly, the people of Britain anxiously wait for the announcement of a policy which will prevent the loss of any more innocent lives.